0: There will be nations that embrace Israel's message and its unique relationship with the Holy Land. What better way to mark the moment than the celebration of Sukkot, to take part with faith in Israel's God, in the celebration of the God that brings rain upon the land of Israel and upon the world. Welcome to Bible365, episode 195, Sukkot and the Future of the World. I'm Mayor Selavajek. In her book, Strangers and Neighbors, Maria Johnson, a Catholic professor at the University of Scranton, describes her friendship with the Orthodox Jews in her neighborhood and how her experience of Judaism has impacted her life. Many non-Jews, she notes, are most familiar with Passover and Hanukkah. But, she continues, there is another holiday with which she has fallen in love. Quote, Sukkot is our family favorite. It is a considerably more important part of the Jewish calendar than Hanukkah and Purim because unlike them, it is ordained in the Torah and remembers a fundamental part of the story of the covenant, the 40 years after the Exodus during which the Jews lived alone in the wilderness with God, while the scars of slavery faded and they grew strong enough to take possession of the promised land. Leviticus 2342 42-43 directs, You shall live in booths for seven days, so that your generation may know that I made the people of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So late every fall, in remembrance of the 40 years in the wilderness, our neighbors' yards sprout little plywood huts with bamboo or branches laid on the top as roofs. Our first time in a sukkah came a few years ago, when the Levies moved in five doors down, one cold, wet October, and had to prepare for Sukkot before they were properly unpacked and settled in. Yisroel, who had been told that our house was the place to go for tools and guy things, came over to borrow a spade so he could level a spot for the sukkah in their steep, bumpy, overgrown yard. Glenn, spotting an opportunity to be neighborly and get muddy all at once, two of his favorite things, went with him and came back several hours later as muddy as he could have wished, smelling distinctly of whiskey and bearing an invitation for dinner. The girls were beside themselves with excitement, in large part because they assumed they would get to wear their new party dresses. I don't know where they learned to get so excited about dressing up, not from their mother, that's for sure, and were incensed when I stuffed them into woolly tights, boots, and three layers of sweaters. Their indignation evaporated into delight when we arrived and walked through the living room through the dining room, through the kitchen, out the back door, through the dark chilly yard, and into the sukkah. It didn't, I imagine, look particularly like the original desert booths, being well furnished with folding chairs, paper chains, and crayon drawings. By Torah law, however, sukkahs cannot be weatherproof. The roof has to be made of natural materials, and you have to be able to see the stars. If the starlight can make it in, so can the rain. End quote. Thus, Maria Johnson with her husband Glenn, non-Jews, joining Jews in the sukkah, experiencing its magic, an appreciation of what the Torah proclaims, as well as the awareness of rain. In this seemingly simple scene, Johnson is hitting on central themes in the conclusion of Zechariah's book, as well as of Sukkot itself. The last chapters of Zechariah describe an apocalyptic battle surrounding Jerusalem, a war waged by nations against that sacred city, with God himself defending his people. Thus, chapter 14, verse 3. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach into Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and all the holy ones with thee. Zechariah is a book about Jerusalem, its holiness, and the way the city reflects the miraculous story of the Jewish people. Thus, as Rabbi Moshe Lichtenstein writes, here, Zechariah describes those that challenge the chosenness that Jerusalem is meant to reflect. Quote, Zechariah describes the war over Jerusalem as a war conducted against Israel by nations that oppose the Jewish people's national and religious aspirations. They do not want Israel to dwell securely in their land. Rather, they coveted it for themselves, and they therefore come to fight against Israel with imperialistic and aggressive geopolitical objectives. Thus, his prophecy about their ultimate defeat fits in well with the overall aim of the book to prophesy about the process of Israel's redemption, starting with the redemption during the Second Temple period, and the days of the return to Zion, and ending with the future redemption and the end of days. End quote. Thus, the theme here is Israel's relations with the nations of the world, and of the assault of some nations upon Israel. But Zechariah also emphasizes that there will be nations that will ultimately embrace the people of Israel in Jerusalem. And in the midst of Zechariah's apocalyptic scene, a seemingly prosaic ritual observance introduces itself. Zechariah tells us that in the end of days, the peoples that recognize the chosenness of Israel and its connection to the Holy Land will join God's people in Jerusalem in order to mark one holiday. Verse 16, And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the festival of Sukkot. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up, and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the Gentile that come not up to keep the festival of Sukkot. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the festival of Sukkot. Thus, some nations will join Israel in celebrating Sukkot. Those that will not will be punished with a lack of rain. It is because of these verses that this chapter in Zechariah provides the Haftarah, the prophetic passage, for the first day of the Sukkot holiday in synagogues around the world. But what does it mean? Why is it Sukkot that nations of the world will join Israel in celebrating? How is rain connected to this holiday? Here we must understand how Sukkot was celebrated in biblical agricultural Israel and especially in temple times. We begin by noting that unlike Egypt, where the fields were naturally irrigated by the Nile, the farmers of the land of Israel relied on rain. And this, for the Torah, was a feature of the Holy Land, not a bug, for it ensured that Israelites would remain ever aware of their reliance on heaven. Thus Deuteronomy 11.10 For the land whither thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence ye came out where thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. But the land whither ye go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. It is only with this in mind that Sukkot can be fully understood. Coming at the end of the harvest, the festival immediately preceded the planting for the year ahead. As Israelites prepared for this moment, they remembered their reliance on heaven for water for rain. The rabbis taught that bchag nidonin al hamayim that on the Sukkot festival, God would judge His people and decide the amount of rain and therefore the level of prosperity that would be experienced in the year to come. Thus, a central temple ritual of the holiday was nisuch hamayim, pouring water on the altar. For it was water that was the most precious commodity, and the cultic rite of pouring out water to God highlighted how the people of Israel in the land of Israel show their trust in God. As Rabbi Yaakov Meydan put it, In the years before there was running water, the spring season began every year with full or nearly full water cisterns in the courtyards of every house. The water level gradually went down over the course of the summer, and with the arrival of fall, the water level fell to the bottom of the cisterns, close to the last drops. The muddy water at the bottom of a cistern is the least clean and the least tasty, but nevertheless the most precious of all the water, as it is precisely on that water that life depends. End quote. Thus does Sukkot celebrate Israel's monotheistic message and the unique way in which Israel's connection to the Holy Land reflects the biblical faith. Israel, on Sukkot, is celebrated as a land that, as Deuteronomy tells us, is one which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. Thus, following a war waged by those that challenged Israel's chosenness, there will be nations that embrace Israel's message and its unique relationship with the Holy Land. What better way to mark the moment than the celebration of Sukkot, to take part with faith in Israel's God in the celebration of the God that brings rain upon the land of Israel and upon the world. Sukkot is known in rabbinic tradition as a holiday that bears universalistic themes, and it is therefore striking to read in Strangers and Neighbors of the Johnson family's appreciation of the holiday. Maria Johnson further describes how, as her family joined her Jewish neighbors in the Sukkah, they experienced a performance of the Hebrew song Echad Miodea, who knows one, which is often also sung at the Passover Seder. The performance Johnson described is, quote, accompanied with energetic gestures and sound effects as it builds on itself from who knows one, I know one, up to who knows 12, I know 12. 12 are the tribes of Israel, 11 are the stars in Yosef's dream, 10 are the holy commandments, all the way back down to, at the top of your lungs, one is Hashem, one is Hashem, one is Hashem, in the heavens and the earth. And then Johnson continues, Hashem means the name and is used in everyday conversation to replace A-D-O-N-A-I, which is used in prayers to replace Y-H-W-H, the sacred name that God revealed to Moses and the Jews absolutely do not utter, ever. Neither do I, for that matter. It would have been hard enough to tear the kids away from the party with Glenn's help, Johnson continues. This evening, it was nearly impossible. By the time it became evident that we had about ten minutes before the children completely fell to pieces, he and the men were surrounded by open books and half-empty glasses deep into a theological conversation and a bottle, and he really didn't want to leave. I finally pried them all away, Johnson concludes, and rather than trekking mud into the house for no reason, we walked down the alley to our dark, empty backyard. End quote. This is a passage written by a non-Jew, beautifully describing a Jewish celebration. One is Hashem. It is all the more striking, because Zachariah's Sukkot prophecy describes all the world coming to understand that one is Hashem, that YHVH is his name, that the reliance on the Almighty illustrated by Israel on Sukkot is truly the reliance that all the world must experience, and that this realization will be made manifest in a moment when Jerusalem will give water to the world. Verse 8, And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the Hinder Sea, in summer and in winter shall it be, and YHVH shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall YHVH be one, and his name one. This last verse is often recited by Jews, for it succinctly summarizes all that we believe is yet to come, a vision of what will arrive in the end of days. This day has not yet arrived, but we do live in an age when there are non-Jews that rejoice in Sukkot and in the miracle of Jewish history. We therefore bring today's episode to a close with sentences given to us by Maria Johnson. Quote, It defies all conceivable logic that a tiny nation like Israel should have survived, while civilizations and empires have arisen, triumphed, and crumbled into oblivion. But in defiance of logic, here they are, a blessing to the nations and a blessing to me. And when they invite me to celebrate their crazy victories over history, I'm there with all my heart." This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.